it's still the year 1980. In this episode, we finish off the second six months of Creative Computing and Compute magazines and a review of the game Space Invaders, published by Atari. Also, the myth of the Space Invaders arcade game and the shortage of the 100 yen coin. I have to look up the definition of the word numismatics. Problem solving and inspiration. Redefining character sets. And a clue to my score for the contest over at Ferg's 2600 Game by Game podcast. This is the Player Missile Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode three. Welcome to the show. This is my retrospective on Atari 8-bit computers, games, and magazines. And as has emerged, a teeny tiny bit of programming and game design on the 8-bit machines. The 8-bits were the Atari models 400 and 800, released in 1979. The XL models, which are the 1200XL, released in 83, and quickly superseded by the 600XL and 800XL in mid-83. And then the XE series, released in 1985 after after Jack Trammell purchased Atari the previous year. My focus is on the evolution of the platform as seen by the games developed for it, through not only the eyes of the game developers, but the authors of the classic computing magazines that supported the Atari. So welcome, and I'm glad you're listening. A few people asked me, why am I doing this podcast? One reason I've stated before is that I wanted to find games that would be good to introduce to my kids and show them how their dad grew up with computers. But another is more complicated. It has to do with the feeling of accomplishment and occasionally of inspiration that I used to get with the 8-bits. I had a great time growing up with my Atari computer, and I hope this might bring back memories of your own if you had an Atari or some other 8-bit computer. Or maybe you can discover the 8-bits now. I was totally going to do a burn on the other 8-bit machines, calling them lesser machines because they ran at 1 MHz instead of 1.79, or because they didn't have advanced graphics processors like the Antic or because their disk drives were really slow, like a cassette player speed. But scripted jokes really aren't my thing. I spent an inordinate amount of time trying to make something funny when I couldn't really connect the threads. So I was stuck at this impasse joke writing. So it's a similar feeling to what I get when I was programming or figuring out some aspect of the 8-bit machines. I'd get stuck, and I'd think and think and think and not get anywhere, and maybe sleep on it or work on something else or doodle or... Maybe, sometimes, occasionally, and because this isn't joke writing, I get a flash of inspiration. And the whole solution would present itself and sort of clicking into place in this brilliant flash that immediately began to dim as I struggled to write down the entire series of connections before that first link broke in the chain, and I'd lose the whole solution. So I remember that feeling a lot with the 8-bits. I'd get stuck or not know how to get past some problem, and then blam, I'd figured it out. And sometimes the solution would take me in a completely different direction than I had planned, which was a total rush. You know, like I'd absorb some bits of what would become the solution all from these different areas, but I hadn't put them all together until somehow my brain connected them in this instant while, you know, I was ostensibly focusing on some unrelated topic. I remember that feeling much more in my childhood than in adulthood. I still sometimes get a pretty good copy of that feeling when I'm doing programming for my job, But sort of the best way for me to recreate that, at least until this podcast, was to read story problems of recreational mathematics, like uh, 
the late Martin Gardner. He was the math editor for Scientific American. I'll include a link to a profile of him in the show notes. So in rec math problems, you know, there's they give you these story problems, and there's always a trick somewhere you're like to figure out what your assumptions are and, and why you're approaching it from the wrong angle. So how taking a step back is helpful. In a classic problem, like two bicycle riders who are riding towards each other, and there's a fly that's zipping back and forth between them. So how far does the fly go before the cyclists meet? And you can sit there and try to figure out, okay, first time the fly goes some distance, then turn around, it goes a shorter distance, and they keep turning around. How many times does the fly turn around? And what's the length of that path? When, what if, blam, you hit on the easy way, you think, well, how long will it take for the cyclist to meet? So you find that time, and then you back out the fly's distance from its rate. So, in full disclosure, I did not figure out the solution to that fly problem on my own. I had to look that one up. I tried to do it the hard way. But today, I do occasionally try to pick up a problem and solve it and see if I can recapture that little feeling of lightning when the pieces click together. These little micro-euphorias that keep me motivated and want me to attempt to solve problems like I did when I was a kid. I'm totally talentless in any artistic endeavors, so I asked artist and friend of the show, Rick Keen, about inspiration from an artistic point of view. And he said, This is such an interesting question, and volumes could probably be written by lots of people about this. I know what I've experienced, and I've read what others have experienced. And I've spoken to other artists, writers, and musicians about what they've experienced. I'm the most comfortable with artwork like illustration, cartooning, some painting, and a few other things. And you've written programs for computers. All these things have the same thing in common to me. They're all problems that need to be solved. An artist is nothing more than a problem solver. A story needs to be drawn out, a magazine cover needs to be illustrated, a sculpture has to be carved out of rock, three lines of type have to be written to sell a product, a publisher is waiting for an author's next book, a video game needs to be designed, a program needs to be written to balance a checkbook. These are all problems that need to be solved, and each one needs a special set of skills or talent. I imagine it's the same for me as it is for you. You're presented with a creative problem by someone, or created by yourself. Whether it comes to you immediately, or you need to mold it over, the synapses start firing off when it hits you, and then this euphoric feeling just sweeps over you. You get so big, busy figuring it out, that when you're done, you step back and think to yourself how you created something from nothing. That's the real rush. It comes in different ways. Sometimes I have a good idea what to do, other times I have to think about it, and other times I sit and stare at a blank page and start without knowing what I'm doing, and it sort of evolves. But when it clicks, it's like that long lost piece of a puzzle locking into the other puzzle pieces. So here's what I think. The creative process may be different to other people, but when the solution clicks, it's the same for everyone. We all get that puzzle-clicking rush no matter what we're trying to manipulate to solve our task at hand, whether it's pencil, ink, paint, musical notes, words, or even numbers or code for a program. It's all creative and artistic, and it comes from deep inside some creative part of us that we all need to satisfy. I believe every one of us is creative in one way or another, and we all get the same creative rush. And yes, I believe there's a real talent in programmers that's the same as any other artist. It's just that each artist has their own medium of choice. Yours is code, and you've been an artist all along, and you've probably never realized it. Well, you know, Rick's trying to make me feel good about being an artist, but, you know, I get what he's saying about the medium of choice being different. Everyone has their own medium or creative outlet, and I suppose we all feel inspiration that when we solve a problem and create a work, a work of art, whatever that art is. So I find this fascinating, and a related question is, do we get inspired more often as kids than as adults? As adults, because we've had similar situations and solved problems, do we not feel that rush anymore because we recognize it? Just like watching a movie for the first time, then rewatching it knowing the ending. Through our experiences solving problems, we have this bank of solutions available to draw on, essentially knowing the ending rather than getting inspired to when we discover the solution. 
I guess to me that's the reason to continually try to learn new things, to make sure we still get the chance to get struck by lightning. So that's a very long-winded second reason that I'm doing this podcast. To recall being inspired, to get inspired myself at something new that I discover about the computers, or even through this process of doing the podcast. And maybe, perhaps, in some very small way, to inspire someone else. So, I have a correction from last episode. On Atari Age, almost immediately after I posted the episode, I got a reply from uh, Atari Age user Flashback Matt, who noted that Super Breakout was written by Larry Kaplan. Yeah, that's my fault for not searching more. After he mentioned it, I discovered links all over the place, and I'll include some of those in the show notes. Larry Kaplan, of course, was the one of the famous four programmers who left Atari for Activision and started the very first third-party software company. There's a digital press interview with Larry Kaplan that Ferg covered pretty well in his uh, bio of Larry Kaplan, and I think it's, let's see, it's, it's his episode number three, where he reviews Air Sea Battle. There's a quote from his interview in Digital Press that's, that's interesting. Uh, the interviewer asks, after he designed bowling, so he, he worked on the Atari 400-800 operating system with David Crane and Alan Miller, and he asked what the project was like. And Larry Kaplan said, It was a nightmare project. Another group of internal programmers were hired to do games, but since they weren't working on one, they were free to work on the OS. They purchased expensive development systems and spent a year not writing an operating system. So Al, Dave, and myself were recruited to deliver an operating system, basic, and a couple of titles in eight weeks. Starting in late October of 78, we designed, wrote, debugged, and delivered a prototype system with games to be unveiled at the Personal Computer Conference in San Francisco in January of 1979. We did hire a consulting company to do BASIC after I told Bill Gates we wouldn't be using his Microsoft BASIC because I didn't like that he had run it through a program that converted the original 8080 code to 6502 since it didn't always do the best job. So this is amazing. An operating system in eight weeks. It's hard to imagine coding an OS in eight weeks just given all the things you have to get right in order for that to work for all the possible cases you can't even test for it. So it must have been the basis for revision A of the operating system, which looks like it was finalized in June of 79. And I'm guessing the show he was talking about was the, was the uh, CES, the January CES in 79. On Atari Age, I found a link for all the source code of all the operating system revisions, so I'll include that in the show notes. Related to my last episode, Super Breakout, in the digital press interview, the interviewer asked if there were any Easter eggs in any of the titles. And Larry Kaplan said, After Warren Robinette's Easter egg and adventure, many programmers started to put them in when they could find room. And the only one I have is in the Atari 400 and Super Breakout, which says my son's names if you type Control-Shift-I. And as I mentioned, he left with... Bob Whitehead, Alan Miller, and David Crane to form Activision. And Larry Kaplan's big hit with Activision was Kaboom, which Ferg covered in his uh, episode 41. For feedback, Ferg pointed me to the 400-800 version of the Super Breakout Manual, which I'll include in the show notes. And also, I'm sponsoring a contest over at Ferg's 2600 Game by Game podcast. We're playing Space Invaders on each other's systems, and you have to guess the combined score. I'm playing on Stella because I don't know what happened to my original 2600. It may be somewhere up in the attic of my parents' house, so I'm going to search for it next time I get home. And he's playing on his actual 800 hardware. But we're both playing Variation 1 on our respective platforms. So again, I'm playing on the 2600 and he's playing on the 8-bit version. So add up what you think my score will be on the 2600 plus Ferg's score on the 800, and send that to Ferg or post it on his Facebook page. 
and you can win a copy of Racing the Beam, which is a super awesome book about the stories behind the development of six 2600 games and the techniques required to program on the 2600, written by Nick Monfort and Ian Bogost. Some more Atari Age feedback from Nermix. Paul Nermanen is one of the hosts of the Intellivisionaries podcast. And I gotta say, they are killing it over there with their interviews. If you haven't listened to them, do yourself a favor and give them a shot, even if you're not an Intellivision fan. There's lots of retro gaming stuff, and their interviews are pure gold. They're super awesome. I don't know anything about the Intellivision except for what I've learned on that podcast, and it's great. So Paul said, I thoroughly enjoyed episode two. I like the technical breakdown of the game code. I haven't heard so much display list interrupt talk since I was teaching myself player missile graphics coding in 1983. Yeah, I'm glad you like it. I'm having a lot of fun looking through the code. Trying to explain stuff is fun, but challenging, and it really forces me to take a step back and try to understand what my assumptions are. You know, where do I start to begin the description? What's the baseline of the audience? Um, it's just like, I suppose, teaching in general is just a, it's hard to get everybody covered and satisfied. And speaking of teaching, there's a great interview with Randall Munro, who draws XKCD and uh, the other, another webcomic called What If. So Randall Munro was interviewed about how he tries to explain technical things. I'll include a link to the interview on 538.com in the show notes. Paul Hickey, the interviewer, said, You managed to write about a lot of complex topics for a general audience. Whom do you write for? What's the target audience in your head when you're writing a What If column? So he replied, It's tempting to think of technical audiences and general audiences as completely different, but I think no matter who you're talking to, the principles of explaining things clearly are the same. The only real difference is which things you can assume they already know, and in that sense, the difference between physicists and the general public isn't necessarily more significant than the difference between physicists and biologists or biologists and geologists. Whether I'm explaining things or solving problems for my own sake, I'm always looking for ways of looking at problems, mental models, that make answers intuitively clear. And once I've hit on one of those, I just try to explain it as simply and clearly as I can. As if I've traveled back a few years in a time machine, I'm giving the executive summary to my past self to save me the trouble of working it out. And I guess he's got a new book out on collected columns from What If and uh, uh, new columns as well. So that's definitely on my Christmas list. And not really feedback, but there's a new 8-bit podcast out there. It's the Atari 8-Bit Productivity Podcast called Inverse Ataski. He's just got episode one out now. It's a, just the introductory episode, and he's going to cover them in seasons, which I think is an interesting concept. So his first season, he's going to talk about word processors. And I'm really curious to learn more about the available word processors on the Atari. I used Atari Writer when I was in school to write all my papers and stuff, but I don't know what else is out there. And having found some of my old Atari Writer files... It would be cool to see if I could, you know, convert them to normal text or, you know, learn how people use Atari Writer today or even learn what I was missing from the other programs that were out there at the time. So if you haven't heard about it, check it out. It's called Inverse Atasky, and I'll include a link in the show notes. All right, let's start looking at the magazines. So first I want to go back and revisit one of the articles from the last episode from the first half of 1980. So Creative Computing, Volume 6, Number 6, June 1980. There was an article called Inside Space Invaders. So in it, they wanted some detail about the game, the arcade game. And they said in the U.S., there at the time, there were 60,000 games, and the orders are still going in. The distributors are finding it hard to keep up with the orders, and the average 
game time is on the market for uh, three to four months. A game lasting six months is Utopia. Space Invaders has been out for 17 months and shows no signs of slacking off. It's a quote from Stan Yaraki, the director of marketing for Midway. More details about the games. They said uh, experimentation showed that the saucer had predictable values. The scores rotate in a sequence of 15 numbers. So there are 800s, 450s, 2 150s, and 1 300. So shooting the saucer every 15th shot gets the 300 score. So to get 300 the first time, you have to set up a sequence where you count 14 shots, and then the next shot you hit the saucer, so that you'll get the maximum score. So the article goes on to quote that the manufacturers thought that the four-digit scoring would be sufficient, and that players would get an extra laser base every 1,000 points. But Taito didn't think that a score of 10,000 would be reached. As says here in the U.S., it wasn't long before the scores of 5,000 were commonplace, and records being set in the 15,000-point range. High score in the U.S., they reported as just over 95,000 at the time. And they said in Japan there was reported scores of uh, three times that amount. Then they said, As successful as Space Invaders continues to be, Midway is not resting on its successes. Deluxe Space Invaders is now on the market with added challenges, and a new game, Galaxian by Namco, is being introduced for those skillful players who have mastered Space Invaders. The true enthusiasts need not fear for new horizons to conquer. And then it has a note. Under license from Astar International, Creative Computing Software is selling the original Space Invaders game for the Apple computer under the name Super Invasion. So today, the current record according to Twin Galaxies is 184,870 set by Richie Knuckles in 2011. Computes issue number 5 for July and August 1980. There's an article on the Atari's marketing VP... Profiles the personal computer market. So it's an interview with Conrad Judson, who is the VP of Sales and Marketing for the Personal Computer Division. In the article, in sort of the preamble, it says, Atari didn't especially like the nickname for the, the 400-800 personal computer, the pop-top computer. But it's a fact that the computer has a pop-top where the plug-in RAM and ROM cartridges fit and part of their innovative user-proof system. But I'd actually never heard of that before, the pop-top computer. In the body of the article, uh, he's talking about that Atari's competitors in the personal computer market chuckle at what they see as the company's attempt to develop the home computer market. In the face of extensive market research, it says the home market won't happen for another four to five years. Does that mean Atari is wasting its resources? Are they really going after the home market, or are they laying the groundwork for a broader marketing program? And... Obviously, that's pretty silly in hindsight because the home computer market was about to explode. So Conrad Judson gives six uses for the home computer. Planning and record-keeping, home education, personal development and interest, uh, interactive entertainment, i.e. games, which Atari was certainly known for, home information and communications, and then home monitoring and controlling. The home monitoring and controlling is pretty interesting. Uh, it's sort of the precursor to the idea of the X10 system, which didn't happen that early in the 80s. I can't, it's happened sometime in the 80s, I think, the X10 stuff came out. That's like where you'd have these electrical outlets and things that would be controlled based on switches that would set a particular unit, and then you'd plug them into the wall circuitry. So it'd sort of communicate through the using the electrical outlet wiring at a really low baud rate, and you, then you could address individual switches and turn them on and off. 
I think X10 is even still around today, although I think it's been superseded by some other more advanced home automation systems. Later in the magazine, there's a review of VisiCalc. VisiCalc was available for the 400-800 around this time. Yeah, business use just never really made inroads. There's an article called Al Baker's Programming Hints for Atari slash Apple, and they happen to be talking about joysticks and basic. And even though it says Atari Apple, it's mostly just Atari stuff. And they're talking about reading the joystick using the basic commands for the reading the eight-way position and the button presses. And then he says, Not that I don't like the pet, but I'm hopelessly addicted to sound and color, joysticks and paddles. For the Atari Gazette, this issue, there's a, they talk about the 16K expansion board for 180 bucks. So RAM prices have dropped quite a bit. There's little blurbs about adding a voice track to programs using the 410 program recorder. Yeah, some stuff about pokes in BASIC to change the graphics. Like, actually use a, a poke statement to the graphics RAM to, to plot stuff on the screen, rather than using the BASIC routines to draw lines or plot points. There's more references on joysticks, and then there's an overview of the I.O. using the various devices, like the E colon device, which is the screen editor, the K colon device, the keyboard, S colon device, or the monitor. I didn't really recall that much of formatted I.O., so it was a good refresher. And it also talks about the XIO commands for reading logical blocks of data. I think this is part of the OS rather than basic. But again, I don't really recall much about using formatted data stuff, so I'll have to look into that and see if I can refresh my memory. Creative Computing, Volume 6, Number 7, July 1980, has the in the cover a dragon staring down a wizard. It's all about adventure games. There's an article that says, Put a dungeon in your computer, which uh, has a section about using the computer as a dungeon master tool for playing Dungeons & Dragons, which I thought it would have been pretty fun to have a computer as a sort of a something to, re to refer to when you're running a campaign. I remember having to put all the stuff on paper and you know, grab paper everywhere and sheets of paper you're shuffling through and so all the reference guides. Although, you know, part of the fun of Dungeons & Dragons was the ability to use your imagination for everything. That's not to say I didn't enjoy the game Dungeon Master on the Atari ST. That was probably my all-time favorite game on the ST. I spent hours and hours and hours on that game. At some point, I hope to talk more about the ST and how it how the 8 bits led to my use of the ST. And Dungeon Master was certainly a big part of that. So, Creative Computing Volume 6, Number 8, August 1980. There is a ad for VisiCalc. And it says, soon to be available on the Atari. VisiCalc was one of the killer apps for the Apple, but its availability on the Atari didn't seem to increase its, it didn't seem to increase the Atari's presence in a business market. Again, I just think Atari couldn't get past the name, or the customers couldn't get past the name of Atari to take it seriously for a business computer. The Outpost Atari this month talks more about the basic and says the basic's not be made by Microsoft which is, a, as it says, either a mis mixed blessing or a mixed curse. Speaking of Microsoft Basic, uh, Paul Hagstrom, yesterday on Twitter and on um, Retro Computing Roundtable, talked about the use of Microsoft Basic and a particular poke statement you could do to get it to change its internal structure so that when you listed a program, it would do funny things. You could, you could remove a line, you could list lines out of order, you'd cause it to list the same line over and over again. 
but this is across platforms. Like he showed examples of the Apple II, Commodore 64, the VIC 20. So Microsoft Basic was really pervasive back in the time. And it was Atari was one of the unique companies that had their own Basic. Although I think Atari outsourced their Basic to a third party. I don't recall off the top of my head. I'll have to do some more research and figure that out. Compute number six for September October 1980. There's a link to. The Video Easel, which is one of the programs designed by Larry Kaplan, that also includes the game of life. Ferg reviewed, I think Comavid did the game called Video Life. The game of life is that game designed by British mathematician John Conway, where you sort of played on graph paper, where if there is a dot with a number of particular neighbors, then the dot continues to the next generation. But if it has too many neighbors, it dies off, and it doesn't have enough neighbors, it dies off. You get these static groups that don't change, and then you get some oscillating items that just blink back and forth or change shapes but stay in the same spot. And then you get some gliders that can move and um, predictable patterns. The Atari Gazette has a tutorial about designing your own graphics modes. It's using display lists, and they're using the basic programming language to modify this. So it talks about the peaks and pokes to use and how to some basic instruction about how to set up display lists. We talked about display lists a little bit in the last episode, and there's definitely more stuff to talk about for display lists. So as games come up that really use display lists, we'll, we'll get into some more of that in future episodes. Creative Computing Volume 6, Number 9, for September 1980. There's a link to... There's an article about the 1980 Summer CES where Atari announced the 815 double disk drive, I think it was double density double disk drive, for $1,500 list price. But I don't think that ever shipped, or if it shipped, it shipped in very small numbers. I know it's one of the really highly sought-after collector's items. Me not being a collector even, I've heard of that. They talk about the 822 thermal printer, which is printing on, like, receipt-sized paper, thermal fax paper. Um, for That, that cost 450 bucks. And then the 825 dot matrix printer for a thousand bucks, which I think was just a rebranded Epson printer. Cause I think it uses the Epson control statements. Uh, again, I'm not sure about that. The outpost Atari for this month talked about educational titles and cassette tapes and educational system master cartridge and how that all worked together. But I never explored any of those, like all the language things. I never tried any of the Atari language or educational programs. Apparently they were pretty good, or at least thorough. Creative Computing Volume 6, number 10 for October 1980. The Outpost Atari for this month talked about a company called the Software Exchange, which ran a poll in its catalog and found that people considering the purchase of a computer, about 75% were considering the Atari, while no other brand name even came close. They said Apple had 25% and TRS-80 about 5%. And and to say the figures add up to more than 100% because many people were considering more than one computer. And then quoting the article, it says, Who would believe after watching the other personal computers over the past three years that Atari would produce so much good software so fast? I don't know, I have to kind of say, what? Really? I guess the Atari software was the only game around. The third-party stuff was still so limited. And quoting the article again, I sympathize with the busy folks at Atari who are producing and supporting all these products. I have already collected about a thousand pages of preliminary documentation 
and I don't see how they even produced it, much less how they can edit and publish it. If you're still lacking essential information about your computer, just be patient. A flood of information has been released, and if Atari doesn't get it out soon, the magazines will. Again, I think Atari should have done more. Again, in hindsight, it's easy to say, but had they released more developer info, I think they would have gotten a foothold over the Commodore 64, which is going to just obliterate the Atari in terms of sales. Compute number 7 for November-December 1980. Noted Iridis number 2 is out. That was that computer magazine on cassette that dealt with like programming. At some point I'll have to check those out, but I think this might be the last one. It's certainly the last one that's referenced on the uh, Atari Mania. There's an article about winning Star Raiders, a strategy guide. So it says concentrate on the energy management. It says lie in wait and never hyperspace more than four sectors. Turn off the shields and computers while refueling. You can pause the game when you're looking at the galactic chart. And that Xylons only move on ticks 0 and 50. So good tips, actually. So it looks like the cost for the Atari 800 around this time is uh, for the 16K model is $749. So it's definitely been going down over the last year. There's an article on the first look at the TRS-80 Coco, and in it there are some simple benchmarks of the basics for the Coco, the Apple, um, and the Atari. And the overall takeaway is Atari Basic is really pretty slow. So the color computer uses the Motorola 6809 processor running at 600, sorry, running at 895 kilohertz, so 0.895 megahertz. So what almost just almost exactly half of the Atari clock speed, and yet on one benchmark, which is a, a loop of 10,000 iterations, where they're squaring a number and then dividing by itself to get the number again. On the Apple II, it took, takes 52 seconds. The Coco is 103 seconds, and the Atari is 159 seconds. So three times slower than the Apple II, and slower than the color computer. All the while, the Atari still has a higher clock speed than either of those. When you add a print statement, the Apple II goes to 250 seconds, the color computer goes to 280, and the Atari goes to 540 seconds. So I've never seen, I've never really seen many more benchmarks of basic, but I sort of anecdotally heard it was slow, but I didn't realize it was that slow to its competitors. All the while, you know, having a faster clock speed than the competitors. Anyway, weird that the Atari would be so much slower yet having a faster clock speed. I'll have to look for some assembly benchmarks and kind of see if this is a function of something, you know, antics stealing processor cycles away, because I know if you turn off DMA, I blank the screen that certainly the computer runs faster, but it, I thought it was only like 20 to 30%. Yeah, weird. I'm going to have to look more into this. Creative Computing Volume 6, number 11 for November 1980. There's an article called On Effective Documentation. The thesis being, docs are not incidental to be done when everything is finished, but an important and basic part of programming. And I couldn't agree more, and it's a rule that I violate time and time again because it's so much more fun just to write the program because you know what it's doing, and you have the ideas in your head and just blast it out, type it in, test it, run it. But then even going back a week later, sometimes I'm thinking, what the heck was I doing here? What does this do? What is this routine? I don't understand. 
And this is stuff that I wrote myself, and I can't imagine what other people looking at my own code are thinking. So I need to like staple this to my monitor, like a, a sheet that says, write documentation as you go. I wish I could get that through my head. I've been programming for, geez, how many years now? So yeah, my advice when you're programming, write your documentation right then. The Outpost Atari for this month talked of Atari Pascal, which was never released. And I don't even know if a prototype was floating around. Maybe somebody can let me know if they ever found a prototype or anything was released like that. So volume 6, number 12 for December. There is an ad for CompuServe, and they specifically talk about the Atari. So if you buy an Atari Telelink cartridge, you'll get one free hour on CompuServe. So one hour at 300 baud would be about, what, I don't know, five sentences of text or something? I don't know. <laughs> an article on it says, if you find an Atari under the Christmas tree, so what can you, you can expect from your Atari if you get one for Christmas? It says, uh, there's excellent RF shielding, so no weird patterns on your TV. So I guess the F6, FCC paid off to some extent. It said there are heat issues, so on hot days, take carts, RAM, and raw modules out and place them in a cool stream of air for five minutes. <laughs> Talks about the Iridus magazines 1 and 2 being available. If you program basic, they use full variable names rather than just two characters. There's that full screen editor that you can edit any line on screen just by using the arrow keys, which I always thought was cool. And yay for lots of colors and sounds. The Outpost Atari for this month also talks about the screen editor. And then it says, if you're listing a program on screen, just use the arrow keys, make your changes, and press enter, and it'll be updated automatically. So those are all the magazines for the end of 1980. Next episode, I'm going to cover, starting uh, and for the 1981 episodes, it'll just be one month at a time. And I'll be talking about the first analog computing magazine, analog number one. And then there's a compute, which goes monthly now in 1981 and the January issue of Creative Computing. So only three magazines for next episode. Now let's get to the game review of Space Invaders. So this is a game published by Atari and released in 1980, originally on cassette. And in 1982, it was re-released on cartridge. So the game was programmed by Rob Fulop, and the original arcade game was released in 1978 by Taito, written by Tomohiro Nishikado. So the object of the game is to not die. It's a single-screen shooter where you're trying to destroy all the invaders before they touch the surface. The, there's a series of waves of aliens, and once you clear a wave, another wave begins, but starting at a lower altitude. And there's no end of the game, so if you're good, you can play theoretically forever, but there's a limited number of bases and you don't get replacement bases at any bonus level. For the arcade version, no quarter hasn't covered this game yet, but Ferg covered the 2600 version in his episode 40, which I'll include a link to in the show notes, and he covered some details of the arcade version, which I'm also going to do. So as I said, the original arcade game was designed by Tomohiro Nishikado in 1978, and interestingly, he created the hardware as well as the software. The CPU is an Intel 8080 running at 2 MHz. That's an 8-bit CPU that can address 64K of memory. It's a vertically oriented raster screen at 
224 by 256, and the original game is in black and white. They projected the image onto a mirror that reflects onto a glass with cellophane covering to, to, to provide the colors for the game. You control a base on the bottom of the screen that shoots lasers. There's a set of four shields that you can use to defend against laser shots, although they, they will get hit and they can slowly get destroyed over time, and you can also shoot them and destroy the shields. There's a full screen f- with 55 aliens, so five rows of 11, that start on the screen at the beginning of the game and then march left and right and then down as they hit each edge. An interesting unintentional design point of the game was that as you shoot the aliens, they speed up. And Mr. Nishikado left that gameplay element in, and it really adds a lot to the game. You can get bonus points by shooting a, a saucer that flies at the top of the screen. And as the article in Creative Computing mentioned, the value of the saucer was supposed to be a mystery, but it was actually predictable. So if you counted your shots correctly, you could always get the maximum value for the saucer. This is one of the most influential video games of all time. It's a paradigm-shifting game. I mean, much like Pong was a paradigm shift from no video games to video games. This game, you not only do you have multiple enemies, but you shoot them and they shoot back. It added the idea of waves and spawned a whole host of imitators starting with Galaxian, and then Galaga, and then the sky was the limit. So this was the very first arcade game I ever saw. And I don't remember where. I was. My family liked to travel and take road trips. And so we were at a Holiday Inn somewhere, I think, in the northeast. But I remember after checking into the hotel, we, my sister and I would always like to swim, and so we'd find the pool. And sitting on the side of the pool deck was the Space Invaders game. And I remember being entranced. I remember the sounds quite clearly. It's still the... You know, the, kind of like the 8-bit computers are my first computer. This is my first arcade game. And like most arcade games, I'm completely terrible at it. But it's still a lot of fun. This has a lot of special memories for me. So there's an often repeated story about the Space Invaders game being released in Japan, causing a shortage of 100 yen coins. And I had heard that it might be apocryphal, and so I did some reading. There is an Atari Age forum post by the author of a scholarly article in a field called Numismatics which is the study of currency of all types, coin, paper, money, and even other units of value like gems, or basically any sort of token that is used in instead of bartering. So I'll include a link to both the Atari Age post and this article about the myth of the 100 yen coin shortage. So basically, the research said it really wouldn't have been profitable to let coins sit in collection boxes. The arcade owners would have taken the coins and exchanged them in the bank or put them back in a, a bill-changing unit. So there's just no way that they would let that many coins stay put. There were 300,000 arcade machines in Japan at this time, so this is like 78, 79. Apparently whole arcades open just to play Space Invaders. So in this article, there's a chart of the mending history of 100 yen coins, and it's fairly consistent in in the 400,000 range until 73 when it jumps up to 600,000, and then back down to 400,000. In 78, there were almost 300,000 coins minted in 79, 380, and then in 1980, there were 588,000 coins minted. But after that, in 81, there were 350,000, then down to 100,000, and then 50,000 after that. So there's there's this spike at 1980, which may indicate that there had been a shortage. But the Japanese mint didn't report anything. There were other numismatists who reported nothing out of the ordinary while either visiting or living in Japan during the height of this. So the conclusion was that the Japanese mint was trying to replace old silver 100 yen coins that were being exported overseas and melted because the the silver in the coin was worth more than the face value of the coin itself. And it's illegal to melt the coins in Japan. So the conclusion was that big spike in uh, 7980 was 
replacement of the silver coins for alloyed coins. So Taito, of course, was not to be denied the free publicity, and they never denied this story. And in an interview for Play Magazine, Mr. Nishikado was asked in 2009 for some anecdote maybe about Space Invaders that hadn't been heard before. And so he said, Perhaps the time when the tires on the car that Taito used to collect coins from the arcades went flat from the weight. The editor of a magazine, Game Life, Chris Kohler, may have been closest to the... The real reason that the supply of 100 yen coins was small was his understanding of the shortage was always that there had been not an increased production of coins, but that, that certain Tokyo no- newspapers had simply reported on spot shortages of coins. So back to the Atari 8-bit version. So this is a good candidate for a MAME cab, because it's a joystick game, use the button to fire, option chooses the game variation, of which there are 12, and select chooses one or two player, and then start begins the game, and that's the only controls that are used. So to play this, you control a laser cannon on the ground that shoots straight up, and you can move left and right. You have one shot on the screen at once, but the shots move a lot faster than they do on the 2600. Another difference to the 2600, and the arcade for that matter, is there are no shield bunkers like the original arcade version. And there's this rocket-shaped sort of mothership thing on the left, and the aliens march out from the left, so the screen doesn't start with a full wave of aliens. They march from the left, and you get to you can shoot them as they start, start to emerge. So there are 48 aliens, there are six rows of eight, and they appear a column at a time, smoothly moving from left to right. There are ten altitudes that the aliens can use. They start at the highest altitude, and as they march across the street and hit the border, they move one row lower in altitude and start marching in the other direction. So the more columns you remove, the longer it takes for them to move down a level. Critically for advancing any at anywhere in this game, there is only one enemy shot allowed on the screen at once. So this can uh, definitely can be exploited to help your score. There's a saucer that occasionally appears at the top of the screen and can be shot for bonus points, and it always seems to move from the left to the right, and unlike the arcade in the 2600, which can I think can appear from either side. When you're hit, there's a little explosion graphic for your ship, and the aliens stop moving, but the saucer keeps going. There are only four speeds of the aliens, so it speeds up after a half are removed, then after three quarters are removed, and then the last time it speeds up are when there's only one alien left. So it's after 24, 36, and 47 aliens are destroyed. The 2600 version has 36 aliens, but has six speeds. So after you clear a wave, the rocket ship thing on the left drops down one level until finally it rests on the ground. That's the lowest level, and after that, the aliens all start at that lowest level. So when the aliens do begin marching again, they start at the very slowest speed, and then, again, as you start picking them off, they speed up. So their shots seem to be pretty good. They'll either shoot right where you are currently, or if they see you're moving, they'll try to anticipate where you're going. It seems to me anyway, as evidenced by my scores later on. The game ends when you lose all your laser cannons, or the aliens touch down on the ground. So the scoring is much different than the 2600 version. In this one, you get two points per alien, regardless of which row of alien there it, you shoot. But when the whole set of aliens moves down one level in altitude, then you get four points per alien. Subsequent al- altitude drops don't increase their value, however. The saucer is worth a kind of oddball 18 points, regardless of when you shoot it. And there are no bonus lives, so attrition will wear you down eventually, and the aliens will get you at some point. 
there's no music in the game, but there are sound effects for the aliens marching that speeds up as in, and gets more intense as they get faster. Also sounds for the saucer and the explosion sound of your inevitable doom as your laser base gets destroyed. The author of the 8-bit version was Rob Fulop, and Ferg talks about him in the, his 2600 Game by Game podcast episode number 7. Uh, Rob Fulop designed Demon Attack, which was one of the all-time classics on the 2600. Rob Fulop got an electrical engineering degree from UC Berkeley, and he went to work right at Atari, hired by Nolan Bushnell himself in 78. So he started at CoinOp and moved into the home division when the 2600 was released. He's one of the better-known 2600 programmers. He did two high-profile games for the 2600 while at Atari, Night Driver and Missile Command. And he's one of the programmers who left Atari to form a third-party software company. But he's not one of the Activision guys. He formed Imagic, and his Demon Attack for the 2600 won Game of the Year in 1982 by Electronic Games Magazine. And so there's not much info on his time developing Space Invaders on the 400-800, nor if he did anything else on the 400-800. So again, I'll refer you to Ferg's episode number 7 for more about Rob Fulop, but I will talk about a few things that I found in some of the interviews I read online. So in a 1994 interview with Wired Magazine, he was asked about if there's a difference between the games he, he's making then in 94 versus the games he made in the early days, because you know, there was increased resolution, more powerful processors and stuff. So Rob Fulop said... The early games, Pac-Man, Space Invaders, Pong, Breakout, those are pure games. They were designed to be replayed. They were drastically, incredibly primitive, but the point is the human brain doesn't care. You play these games, and by the third time you play, the graphics are invisible to your brain. And then in a subject that's close to my heart, he and then he was asked about games and kids, and he wondered, I don't think it's healthy. After 12 years of making these games, I'm worried about what they might be doing to kids. That's why I want to make games that involve other human beings. I, w- I want the thing to be a relationship. That, to me, is more real. And that's an interesting point. In uh, 2009, Tristan Donovan, the author of a book called Replay, The History of Video Games, did a follow-up interview with Rob Fulop, where he kind of followed up on this topic. And so Tristan Donovan asked, I was reading an interview you did with Wired back in 94, and you mentioned that after more than a decade of making video games, you were worried about what they might be doing to kids. Do you still feel the same? And Rob Fulop responded, Oh, I have a personal philosophy. It may not be true at all, but I believe that I grew up in a generation where we watched TV. That's all we did. We watched TV. And TV was basically 30-minute stories where that always had a happy ending. Whatever the problem, and a half hour of the problem where it was worked out. So I'm not being invited to the dance, and by the end I'm invited to the dance, right? Or there's a bad guy, and by the end of the hour they catch the bad guy. But then there are a lot of people that get divorced and things aren't working out. They leave a job after a month. No one's patient. They're expecting things to work out right away because of TV. Now you think of video games. The message in video games to me is, no matter what you do, you always lose. Then Tristan Donovan asks, like the whole Space Invaders thing? And Rob Phillip responds, right. You never, ever, 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 ever win. And I think that has created a whole different culture because the kids that grow up playing these games basically have a very fatalistic view. Like, what's the point? I see a lot of that in the music, kind of negatives. I don't know if that's true or not, but there's something there that the experience of playing games is you very, very, very rarely succeed. And if you drum that into a kid over and over again, that's got to be doing something. It's like you never win. Once in a million years you win. Unless you can find the cheat. So what does that teach you? And that's a really interesting idea. I never really thought about sort of that to follow that to logic to the end. 
where really video games you never ever win. There's a few games you can complete, but largely it's just like the Space Invaders used the War of Attrition, they will get you in the end. Does that have an effect on kids? I mean my own personal experience is I didn't I didn't expect to win the games. Maybe that was maybe it was just a test of skill to see how far you can get, but I never really attached that sort of fatalistic view to my play of video games. I don't think. I don't know. I'm interested to hear what you, the listeners, might think about that. Is the idea of not being able to complete a game, or the idea that the game will always win, did that have a negative effect on you? Did it have a negative effect on you know your kids, if your kids are playing games? What do you think about that? It's a very interesting discussion point that, that Rob Fulop raised in that interview. And yeah, I'm definitely curious as to what other people might think about it. Certainly the contrast between the TV show characters always succeeding in the end, and your video game avatar always getting crunched, blown up, destroyed. I don't know, I never thought about the negative, long-lasting impacts of that. So, yeah, I'll be interested to hear what other people might think. So, because we're still in the early days of the Atari 8-bits, this is an Atari first-party game. It was released on cassette and 8K cartridge. And like Super Breakout in the last episode, I looked at it at a hex editor, and it seems that the game logic is less than 4K. And also in the hex editor, I can see the sprites, and I'll talk to a little bit more about that in a, in a little bit. So Ferg pointed me out to a site where I found the Space Invaders manual in PDF form, and a really cool desktop wallpaper, so I'll include a link to that in the show notes. But again, this, you know, this is an early game, it really doesn't need instructions for how to play. If you just were to see this game and you saw a joystick and a button, and you started the game, you could, wouldn't take long to figure out that all the joystick moves left and right, and the button shoots, and oh, I probably have to destroy these things that are emerging. These early games target an unfamiliar audience. You know, like the classic Pong, the single instruction was, avoid missing ball for high score. And that super breakout for last episode was just like Pong, except you hit a few things. The one thing the manual does help with is game variations, of which there are 12. Basically, the game variations are some combination of either three or five lives, your laser beam speed, and the speed of the aliens, either slow, fast, sort of alternating slow and fast, or homing laser shots from them. The manual cover artwork is epic. It is just really, really awesome. By an artist named Bob Flamot. I couldn't find anything else about him, although I did find a few little teeny tiny pictures in an Atari newsletter called The Coin Connection. So I'll include a link to that in the show notes. The Yeah, like I said, the, the artwork is just really, really cool. Instead of, it's sort of this moonscape, but instead of a vertical orientation where you're shooting like alien ships, it describes aliens in spacesuits kind of marching across a field, and there's a turret that aims across to the horizon, <laughs> kind of like the turrets on Hoth in The Empire Strikes Back. The artwork shows shooting these space-suited aliens as they march in with machine gun things, sort of these laser machine guns. It's odd because it's almost like it's describing a totally different game, but it's epic and super cool, so I think it's worth a, a look. On the newgamer.com website where I found the PDF, there's a desktop-sized version of the wallpaper, which should definitely be a way to show your 8-bit love. So the manual has a backstory about the game, but they really only spent a couple sentences on it. It says, You've made a mission to the moon, but so have the deadly space invaders. TM indicates trademark of Taito America Corp. Your objective is to protect yourself from alien invaders and prevent them from landing on the lunar surface by destroying them. It then describes the gameplay a little bit, which I've pretty much covered. 
And in all these early manuals, they go into painstaking detail to describe how to insert the cartridge, turn on the power to the machine, make sure the display is connected correctly, which is all kind of funny now, but at the time, you know, it may be the first time people have seen the computer, even set it up for the first time. Ferg described in his review of Space Invaders for uh, the 2600 Game by Game podcast that Space Invaders on the 2600 was a killer app in which people bought the 2600 purely to play Space Invaders. It wasn't really the case on the 800, because other games had come out, and this is two years later. But still, it would not be unheard of for this to be their first introduction to the computer, so to have this sort of detail level of instruction was definitely necessary. Some technical details of the game. So it uses five techniques that make this game easier to develop on the 8-bits than on other systems. And virtually anything makes it easier to develop on than the 2600. So it must have been a step back for Rob Fulop to go back to coding the 2600. Although, of course, he was a, a master on the 2600. I think he was the one who discovered the Starfield bug that he used in Cosmic Arc. Anywhere here in Space Invaders, he used at least uh, player missile graphics, horizontal scrolling, character set remapping, display list interrupts, and not only custom display lists, but in-game display list modification. So we've talked about player missile graphics before a little bit. So the players are your laser base the mothership rocket ship thingy on the left, and the saucer. And missiles are used for your shot and the alien shot. And because the player missile graphics are overlaid on the screen, um, any display list modifications don't affect it. So scrolling we haven't talked about much, and I'll talk about it in more detail in a future episode. But it's sort of easy to explain in modern terms. So if you can just imagine like an Excel spreadsheet, and the scroll bars on the right side and the bottom... So you get this tiny little view of the whole set of cells, and the scroll bars allow you to position the view anywhere within that larger rectangular grid. So vertical scrolling and horizontal scrolling are handled differently from each other on the 8-bits, and there's additionally coarse scrolling and fine scrolling, and I'll cover all those details in a future episode. But for now, kind of think of horizontal scrolling is that it allows you it allows the lines to be wider than a normal screen, uh, that is to contain more bytes, and you position the viewable portion at a particular byte, sort of subsetting that line. Looking at the display list, he used Basic Mode 1 or Antic Mode 6 as the playfield. And this is a text mode. It uses a 64-character font, each of which is 8 bytes, and the characters can be any of four colors. The bitmap is 8 bits per byte, so each bit represents a pixel on the screen. And all the fonts on the Atari were not variable, they're all fixed-width fonts. So this mode is 20 bytes wide, so it's 20 characters wide. And each alien is two characters wide. So he re- redefined the character set so that, that one, I would say letter, I guess one glyph is the left half of an alien, and another glyph is the right half of an alien. I thought he might have redefined the characters on the fly, where, unlike bitmap graphics, when you change the bit pattern of the font, it automatically changes it in all the appearances on screen, even those that are already drawn on screen. With regular bitmap tiles, you'd have to go back and update the tiles that had already been drawn. With character set redefinition, you just change the definition in memory, and then Antic changes it everywhere on screen at once. But after looking at it, he looks like he's using, he's using an animation loop, where every frame he's changing the character in memory to the next sequence in the animation loop. So there's an Easter egg here. In one animation sequence, the second to the last row of aliens resembles an R, and the last row resembles an F. So RF, his initials. So, because there's only four colors available in this graphics mode, he uses a display list interrupt to change the colors of the aliens, but display list interrupts are all old hat to us by now since we talked about those last episode. The in-game display list modification is new, however. 
So instead of drawing the aliens at a lower row when they hit the edge of the screen, and then they move down to the next row, he inserts eight blank scan lines at the top of the display, which has the effect of moving the aliens lower down on the screen. But in memory, nothing changes, He does so he doesn't have to redraw the aliens at a lower position in memory. And you couple this with the horizontal scrolling, and he literally doesn't have to move any bytes to get the aliens to move left, right, or down. He uses scrolling registers to position left and right, and the insertion of the blank scan lines in the display list to move them down. So each grid of eight aliens in the six rows never changes location in memory. So contrast this to something like the Apple II, where every time the aliens moved even a single pixel, the entire screen would have to be redrawn. So here the hardware handles everything for you. So in memory now you have this static grid of redefined text characters. Use the player missile graphics for collision detection, which is automatic. And you can see there's a lot of simplifications to the game development that were provided by the Atari. And in the future we'll even see how they are used to provide more and more complex games. So my memories of the game, you know, I don't remember ever playing it. I certainly played the 2600 version a lot, but I don't remember playing this game until now. I have to say, even though it's not a direct clone of the Space Invaders, either the arcade game or the 2600 version, you know, it plays differently without the shields and the the way the aliens emerge from the rocket ship rather than being presented with a full wave at once. I did enjoy it a lot. Because of the contest Ferg and I are doing on his podcast, I sort of alternated between the 2600 version and the 800 version recently. And it's much different. The 2600 version, the shots are much slower, and it's a painfully long wait for that shot to disappear off the top of the screen, if you've missed the aliens. So I do say, I'm, I, I do like that better about the 800 version, where the shots move faster. But I like the 2600 version a lot as well, because it's, you know, it is more of the classic port of the arcade game. The games are different enough where I don't think you need to choose one or the other as your favorite version, because it's almost, they almost are two separate games. So I like them both. So I played this version quite a lot, and at first it took me a long time to get anywhere. I was getting scores in the four to 500 range, and finally I made it through wave 10 where the rocket ship landed on the surface. There's a little interstitial that happens when you, when the rocket ship lands, and I won't spoil it for you. Although I will say I was confused as to what was going on. I thought one of my ships was being stolen somehow. But I managed to last a few more rounds after the rocket ship touched down, and once the aliens get that low, it's not because their shots are so fast, it's really hard to continue on. Spent, I spent a lot, a lot more time playing this than I thought I, I would, and I ended up getting a score of 12.24 on game one. So for Ferg's contest, because the invaders are worth so many more points, I couldn't help score a little higher on the 2600 version. So I was able to get a small multiple of my score on the 2600 version. But that's the most hints you'll get, so my score on the 2600 version is higher. On the Atari Age High Score Club, it doesn't look like there's an official competition for this, uh, but there was a thread about it. There's certainly been many competitions on the 2600 version. I'll include a link in the show notes about... Uh, there's a YouTube video where a guy on his original Atari hardware beat the uh, Twin Galaxies world record. So this guy on YouTube got 3418, which is a lot of waves when you're when the rocket ship has touched down. So the Twin Galaxies official record is 2716, and the official record is on real hardware. They had an emulation section. I don't know if they do emulation anymore, high scores, but there is a, a grandfathered end high score on emulation of 7184, which I can only imagine how many waves of that after the rocket ship has touched down. So Space Invaders inspired any number of clones and modern updates. Too many to list here. I think my favorite shooter on the 8-bit might be Gyrus, 
But Gyro does, Gyrus doesn't come out until 83 or 84, I think. But it's definitely one of the games on my list of possible candidates to review when I get there. So that's it for this episode in Space Invaders. You can always contact me via email at feedback at playermissile.com or on Twitter, I'm at Atari8BitGames. So don't forget about the contest with Ferg. Submit your guests on our combined high scores to Ferg, either on via email to him or on his Facebook page. And also I'd be interested in hearing your feedback on what you think about the difference in the unwinnability of games versus the sort of happy ending in 30 minutes of TV shows. I think that's an interesting topic that Rob Fulop raised in his interviews. So to close this out, since I talked about Gyrus, here's a medley of the theme music. And I will see you in January 1981 for Caverns of Mars. Computing volume, volume 6, number 7, for July 1980. There's a cover of, uh, I think I already did this.
Creative Computing, Volume 6, Number 8, for August 1980. There's an article about PhysiCalc. I think I already did this, too.